Welcome back to the New School OBGYN Podcast, Mm -hmm. a podcast in women's health, but for everyone. Our goal is to promote good, reliable knowledge because the source of your information matters. My name is Eric Schmidt. I have Dr. Valieva with me again. Hello. And we're going to talk to you about ablation today, endometrial ablation. Please consider downloading and following along. We're in all the major podcast hosts and check us out on YouTube. Video podcasts are going up and they're going up hot and crispy. Are they? (laughs) It's a little aggressive on the uh, music turn up by me, but um, again, we are talking about endometrial ablation today, Olga. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, why would someone be interested in endometrial ablation? I was going to make a snarky comment, but I'll withhold. (laughs) So you're probably going to say no one, but yes, it is good for some people. Please tell us who Olga. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, endometrial ablation. So I think we've talked about in the past as a way to treat heavy bleeding for women, um, patients who, um, don't necessarily want to be on hormonal medications or cannot take hormonal medications and are either not a good candidate for a more aggressive intervention like a hysterectomy or just don't want to have a hysterectomy because, you know, has a larger impact on your life recovery, et cetera. So, um, typically we reserve for patients in their forties, but can be done a little bit earlier, but we can talk about that as well and use for treatment of abnormal bleeding for patients who don't want to, or can't have either surgical hysterectomy or hormonal therapy for their bleeding. Yeah. Or it didn't work for them. Yeah. Yeah. So good quick overview, mm-hmm. but I want to start with some clinical scenarios again. Go for it. 45 year old female with abnormal uterine bleeding has completed her childbearing normal uterus on ultrasound. We'll think about that, you know, mm-hmm. what she should go for. Think about different options that we've talked about mm-hmm. already on this podcast. Let's contrast that with a 30-year-old female. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what? Uh, what's the best treatment option for her? Again, has completed her childbearing, um, has four kids, normal uterus on ultrasound. And uh, let's go with a 46-year-old female mm-hmm. um, who has an abnormal-shaped uterus. Mm-hmm. Let's say didelphus uterus. Mm-hmm. Uh, has been suffering from abnormal bleeding also. Um, and so, uh, again, we'll keep that in mind um, as, you know, potential options for these uh, peoples. And so um, anatomy review, mm-hmm. you know, we just did the hysterectomy uh, podcast uh, and we drew nice little images of a uterus, um, mm-hmm. but we had some technical difficulties and we do not have our third camera. And we thought, you know, we'd rather show. Yeah. Also, um, the other views. So my poor artistic skills. <laughs> it's going to be improving as we go <laughs> along. So don't hang in there. Um, thanks for listening yeah. and viewing. Um, so endometrial ablation, what it is, mm-hmm. is um, a little procedure that can be done both in office or in the hospital. Uh, where a little device, and there's a few of them, goes inside the uterus and it burns the um, the my or the endometrial layer down mm-hmm. to the the base layer of where the myometrium is. Uh, maybe I'll put some after uh, video of this in there, but um, it burns in a few millimeters of depth to get to that base layer where that endometrium grows back every month um, or, you know, however long uh, that person um, or however however frequent that person mm-hmm. bleeds for. Um, and so, and kind of um, ablates or destroys it. Yeah. So in normal people terms, the we're trying to destroy the, what well, I'm just saying. <laughs> no, no. I, the lining of the uterus and maybe a little bit of the underlying muscle so that the lining doesn't grow every month. Correct. Yeah. Thank you. Of course. Anytime. Anything for you. Um, so I wanted to ask you a question, Eric. You mentioned childbearing or completed childbearing a few times. Why is that important? Well, um, 
we're going into the hot and heavy quickly. Oh, here. I'm sorry. Um, so <laughs> who <laughs> well, is this? <laughs> oh, it's transition. <laughs> Olga. Wait. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I wanted the lasers. That was a great transition. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. See, I did something right. Who is this for? Um, so, or who is it not for? Mm-hmm. Um, someone who might have endometrial cancers. Correct. Someone who may have an active infection. This mm-hmm. doesn't mean past infections. And so active infection, mm-hmm. or like you alluded to, uh, someone that desires pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, because it can be dangerous mm-hmm. um, to get into that a little bit. Uh, it's not a form of contraception. Correct. Um, the tubes are still open. Mm-hmm. And if fertilization did happen, um, it could be very dangerous to that that person. Um, and that pregnancy could be a very high-risk pregnancy. Correct. Um, also, can't really get pregnant. So if you are planning on having kids in the future, probably not a good option for you. Correct. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know... There are some other reasons why someone maybe, you know, and that we put into the equation what might be good or good or who might be good or mm-hmm. um, or not good for getting this done for them. Um, and so there are certain syndromes um, or it, if, again, the, the uterus is abnormal shape because mm-hmm. um, the way that this procedure is done, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, um, the uterus kind of needs to be somewhat normal, not a lot mm-hmm. of big fibroids. Uh, normal cavity. So that's mm-hmm. a, a something that we need to watch out yeah. for. And then the you mentioned the cancer aspect of that. So if somebody has an active cancer, obviously it's not a treatment for cancer. Um, and also people who are at a high risk of developing uterine cancer. So people who either have a genetic condition um, that predisposes them to more or any kind of uterine cancer mm-hmm. or people that have different lifestyle factors um, that increase their risk of cancer. Endometrial cancer, yeah. Um, because, you know, usually, again, briefly touching and we're mm-hmm. going on a little tangent here again, but endometrial cancers often present as bleeding. Mm-hmm. And so if someone has an endometrial ablation, that mm-hmm. bleeding might be blocked from getting out Correct. and clinically being able to see yeah. and also difficult to biopsy because, Correct. again, this burning causes scarring and it's difficult to go in that uterus mm-hmm. ever again. And, and even if we can get into the uterus, we don't always get a good sample. So it's they're often missed. So yeah. we try not to recommend those. Um I apologize for being all over the place there, but yes, uh, those are some reasons why someone mm-hmm. shouldn't get it done. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, we, let's say we see somebody in clinic that's mm-hmm. having bleeding again, we're treating the main symptom of bleeding with mm-hmm. endometrial ablation, not necessarily, you know, unknown pelvic pain, you know, um, but, um, yeah, bleeding, um, and someone comes in and what's our workup? So first thing we do, obviously, after talking to them about their history and their, you know, medical conditions, we want to take a pelvic ultrasound just to see what their uterine anatomy is like. Um, as Eric mentioned, we um, endometrial ablation is not typically recommended for those who have an abnormally shaped uterus or um, have too many fibroids because not so much, maybe not recommended, but it may not even work for them, right? So we'd hate to put somebody through a procedure that's not for them. Um, and then the second thing we do is we obtain a biopsy of the lining of the uterus or the endometrium uh, for two reasons. One, we want to make sure they don't already have cancer. As we talked about, cancer often presents as bleeding. And two, we also still want to make sure that we sample them ahead of time to see if they have any abnormal or precancerous lesions so that we know what we're looking for down the road. There's a number of different um, types of biopsies we do Mm -hmm. as OBGYNs. Could you walk me through an endometrial biopsy? Oh man, I don't want to. They sound painful. Um, (laughs) (laughs) They are. They are. (laughs) So the two most common ones we do are, um, these can be done both, you know, in the office or in the OR setting. So the office procedure is called an endometrial biopsy with a pipe So it's a tiny little straw, a couple of millimeters wide that we 
placed through the cervix and into the uterine cavity. And it has this little plunger action and mm-hmm. we pull on it and it sucks some of the uterine tissue in there. Um, we want to make sure we get a decent sample of the lining. Sometimes we have to do one or two passes, hopefully not more than that, just to make sure we get everything that we need. Um, because we're passing this through the cervix, it tends to be, I, I don't want to sugarcoat it, doesn't feel good, um, pretty crampy, but it is a very quick procedure. If women don't want to or can't tolerate this procedure, the other option is to do a DNC or dilation and curatage. Um, again, could be done in the office with a with some local anesthetic, but still pretty painful. So we typically do it under sedation where we go in and using a slightly larger instrument while a patient is anesthetized, we go in and for the lack of a better word, scrape yeah. out the lining. Yeah. yeah. And kind of a, a good topic to that's being touched on, you know, luckily is, is, um, pain control for these type of mm-hmm. procedures. And so, um, if we're going to do a procedure, you know, whether endometrial biopsy mm-hmm. or marine IUD, both are very similar in the way that they're done. Um, not, sorry, I didn't mean to use a brand name there, any IUD, um, <laughs> uh, it, Introducing that pipette into the uterus can cause a lot of cramping. Mm-hmm. And so there's a few different ways we can try and control pain. And one is with premedicating with ibuprofen. Mm-hmm. Um, and a common dose we might do is like six or 800 milligrams. But talk mm-hmm. to your provider regarding what you should do regarding that um, to try and reduce that cramping during the procedure and afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's a difficult question when it comes to local anesthesia. Because um, the way I like to explain it too, it, it depends on the patient too. Um, because if someone's... For example, you know, just from experience wise, and mm-hmm. I think you could probably attest to this mm-hmm. too. If someone is, has kids before, mm-hmm. you know, a few vaginal deliveries and they're coming in and we have to do this biopsy. Um, usually that's a patient that's usually more tolerated mm-hmm. well in mm-hmm. versus someone, let's say, who's past menopause yeah. and, and um, the cervix is a little uh, tighter mm-hmm. um, or someone very young who hasn't had kids yet. Mm-hmm. Um, not that we do many biopsies in that population, but... Um, and so the person that's had kids before, sometimes injecting that numbing medicine mm-hmm. is m- more, um, painful than the mm-hmm. procedure itself. Right. Yeah. And so it's kind of a, you know, I always have the conversation with patient, it, there is that option for pain control, but, um, it, it might be more painful than the procedure um, itself. And it takes longer than the procedure itself. Yeah. Right. Um, the procedure, once that pipette goes in is about five seconds, give mm-hmm. or take. Um, and so it's a, it's a conversation and a hot topic when it comes mm-hmm. to the, the online, you know, and the social medias, as far as making sure women are getting good pain control with sure. their procedures. Um, because in the past that wasn't always a consideration. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it is a, a point that's important to us. Uh, but we just, you know, have those conversations on what's the best option for that patient. Right. Yeah. And for some patients, we just don't tolerate public exams too. There's an option of using slightly more pain medication, like a little bit more aggressive or than just going to the OR. And that's okay too. I don't want, you know, patients to ever feel bad about not being able to tolerate an exam in the office. Yeah. You know, and so the patient, yeah, could get a stronger pain medicine mm-hmm. or an anti-anxiety medicine before mm-hmm. it. Um, some offices have options of things like nitrous oxide mm-hmm. as an anesthetic. Yeah. Um, but in office procedure wise, it's, it, there's not many <laughs> other, other uh, options. Yeah. So, yeah. okay. Um, well, uh, let's say we think somebody is a good candidate for ablation. They have mm-hmm. a no- normal sized uterus. Everything looks good. Um, and the biopsy is obviously uh, benign, mm-hmm. no cancer cells. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, let's talk a little bit about the different types of procedures and the procedure themselves. Mm-hmm. You want to go? No, oh, I don't want to. Okay. okay. I'll go ahead. Uh, so <laughs> briefly, you know, there are different types of devices we can use for this. Um, there was, but nice 
it's there was this other device. It's called a resectoscope. Don't need to know this for some any still reason. Is. Some it's still, still some people it do use now. it, and it's good, but it's it's more user dependent. And so over the years, they're coming out with these other devices, which it's it's kind of a um, an easier process mm-hmm. and does more of a whole burn versus like slowly rolling something on it. And so um, there's a few different options, and it, it honestly doesn't matter too much is mm-hmm. I think as long as whatever your surgeon prefers as their option mm-hmm. is, is the right option. And so, you know, sometimes if someone comes to me, it's like, Oh, I want, you know, this option. It's like, well, you know, we really good. We're really good with this option. We mm-hmm. have this option and, and they, they're all very somewhat similar in their, their profiles. So, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> yeah. Um, so generally how we do it, mm-hmm. um, I'll, I'll let you take over. Okay. So, me. Um, some people, not everybody does this, but I typically like to also include a hysteroscopy with this procedure just so, yes, we have an ultrasound, but ultrasound is never perfect. So I like to take a look at the cavity myself just to make sure we're not missing something like a small fibroid or a polyp that maybe the ultrasound didn't catch. Mm-hmm. So I'll put in the camera, distend the uterine cavity with fluid, take a look around. And if we need to, then we can do a diffuse shaving of the endometrial layer just to thin it out as much as we can. Um, you know, if there's any abnormal structures or anything that we need to resect ahead of time, that's a good time to do it. Um, again, not everybody does this. Some people just go in and do the procedure, but you know, buzzer minds, I think you do the hysteroscopies as well, right? I think most people. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. yeah, I like to do the hysteroscopy yeah. for the same reason. Yeah. So we already have the measurements of the uterus on, um, on the ultrasound, but we also like to take the measurements while we're in the OR. So we measure the length of the cervix and then we measure the length of the uterine cavity just so that we know what we're doing. Um, I should back up a little bit. So the type of ablation that Eric and I typically do is the radio frequency type of ablation. Yeah. So there are several different types. So radio frequency, I would say is probably the most commonly done now. Um, there are variable rates of um, improved bleeding control, depending on the type of procedure. Um, some of the other types include freezing the uterine cavity, um, using heated fluid or hydrothermal ablation um, to burn the lining of the uterus, and then also vapor. Yeah. I mean, they're honestly, they're fine. They don't typically tend to work as well. And I don't know if you've ever done any of those. They take a long time. Yeah. yeah. As far as the efficiency and, mm-hmm. and highest rate of getting somebody to know bleeding. Correct. The radio frequency is yeah. the most commonly done. So um, we take measurements of the uterus and then we put in the radio frequency device, deploy it, usually depending on the, you know, the uterus and the shape size, it probably takes about one or two minutes to do that. And then I like to look back again. I don't know if you do the same thing. It just gives me joy to see that uterine lining dead. I don't know why. Probably something wrong with me. Yeah. Um, not everybody does this as well, but for me, I just like to make sure that I got the uterus yeah. the way that I'm supposed yeah. to. So, yeah. 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 So I'd it, say all in all, maybe 10, 15 minutes altogether with yeah. equipment set up. It's That's a very a, quick procedure. It's a nice thing about mm-hmm. ablation and why it's a good option is because it's so easy. The risks of the procedure are so low. Mm-hmm. You know, we briefly to touch on the risk. Anytime you're you're doing hysteroscopy or pushing something into the uterus, there's always a chance of accidentally poking a small uh, hole in the muscle. Um, you know, but that's less than one percent of the time. Mm-hmm. And it heals the risk awesome, of so. the bleeding yeah. is minimal to none for mm-hmm. this procedure. The risk of infection one percent. Mm-hmm. Um, um, there is one thing I like to talk about patients about to be very clear when I'm con- discussing ablation versus other options with them is the risk of, um, continued cramping afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the way that I like to explain this procedure, or it's called post-ablation tubligation syndrome is you're closing off all of the exits for blood of the, the uterus. And mm-hmm. so the, where the tubes are, where the cervix is, cause that's getting scarred cause it's getting burnt. And so, um, 
if by chance the ablation doesn't get an area perfectly or mm-hmm. by chance the body heals that one specific area over time and the bleeding tries to happen and it's just in the uterus it can't and it can't get out mm-hmm. um that uh can cause some pretty significant cramping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, usually it's like if you have your ablation and then like every month you're still getting this bad cramping and with or without bleeding mm-hmm. coming with it, that's probably post-ablation syndrome mm-hmm. um, and it might need further treatment. Yeah. Um, and so that's about 10% of the time, give or take. Yeah. And I agree. Um, I definitely make sure to counsel that, yes, I can help your bleeding, but I don't know if I can help your pain as well because it's just not a guarantee with that one. Right. Yeah. Um, and then- what to expect afterward, mm-hmm. after your ablation. Again, whether it was done in the office or the hospital, um, hopefully the the cramping is not too much. I'd mm-hmm. like to describe it as kind of um, light to medium cramping. Um, usually my patients, and I'm assuming yours too, mm-hmm. are not going home in a lot of pain after this no, procedure. No, typically not. No. But I mean, you know, I always say like you've, if you've had a burn, burn hurts hurt, right? right. And now you bring your uterus, the, the neighbors are going to be a little upset too. So you might have a little bit more pelvic cramping than some your typical, some inflammation, yeah. right? Yeah. So um, depending on patient's pain tolerance, some are okay with just ibuprofen. Some may need some light narcotic level medication, but again, everybody's different, but typically uh, patients are home the same day, maybe a few days of cramping, discharge, spotting, but um, pretty quick recovery, pretty quick to back to normal life, about 24 hours post-anesthesia if they got general anesthesia. Yeah. There might be variant. yeah. Recovery varies a little bit. Some yeah. people might say, you know, after 24 to 40 hours, you're mm-hmm. good to go. Some might get, have be a little more conservative on the restrictment restrictions for mm-hmm. a week or two. It's, yeah. it's hard to say, but it's not going to put you down long. Um, you can return to your normal life, hopefully very quick after Absolutely. this. Absolutely. That's the big benefit. Mm-hmm. We'll keep that in mind. Um, also, something I'm very clear with patients and ablation is that um, it's not a guarantee to take away all your bleeding. 100%. And it's actually probably a lower percentage than what you think. Mm-hmm. Um, amenorrhea rates or no bleeding rates after the ablation are probably around 40-ish percent, maybe up to 50 in some people that are close to menopause. Um but they reduce bleeding in a very high number. So that's like ni- upper 90s percentage mm-hmm. of people that are happy and their bleeding is significantly better. And a lot of times that's patients are just like, I, need, I just need a little, I need, yeah. help. Yeah. I need help here. I, yeah. you know, um, but if you, if you want to completely get rid of your bleeding, I can't guarantee this yeah. procedure is going to do it for you. Right. And um, to, to second that, I mean, it's very important to definitely say, yes, it's not going to get your bleeding, but sometimes these ablations either don't get the expected result or maybe there wasn't a, it didn't work as well. So about 20% of women will still need something a little bit more aggressive or something in addition to an ablation to help control their bleeding and or pain. Right. All right. Okay. Well, let's, let's, let's briefly look at those clinical scenarios. Okay. Let's go back. I think we had a 45 year old normal uterus bleeding. She needs help. Um, is this a good patient in normal uterus? Absolutely. Um, for her, definitely with a normal uterus, she's not planning on having kids. Um, she's closer to menopause. Um, definitely good candidate for this procedure. Same scenario, 30 year old. So definitely a discussion to be had. So the procedure was really originally intended to give help with bleeding a little bit closer to menopause to kind of tide you over the next few years until you stop bleeding completely. Um, And a lot of the studies were done in patients in their 40s rather than people in their 20s or 30s or whatever. So I often caution patients in their 30s trying to get the ablation done or wanting to get the ablation done that they're more likely to fail. Um, 
A, because we just don't have a lot of data too, because they're younger and healthier and there's more time for that lining to heal over and to grow back. So is it wrong for somebody in their thirties to get the ablation? No, but I definitely strongly talk to them about like, sure, this may work for the next five years, but five years later, we're going to be back at this point. And then yeah. what do we do with, yeah. you know, then, so it's, is it a no, no, but it's a, let's really talk about this. Yeah. It's definitely, definite conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause it's like, well, what, you know, again, going through all their options of like good mm-hmm. long-term management, IUD ablation, um, if it's just bleeding or hysterectomy, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, there's other options out sure. there, obviously, but the kind of the main ones that we often talk yeah. about in those scenarios. And so, you know, maybe the ablation gets you to a point where you retain your uterus, keep your uterus for mm-hmm. five to 10 more years. Um, if the problems arise um, again, then we might be talking about hysterectomy. Yeah. Or people maybe just aren't ready for a much bigger surgery and it's a good- Small kind kids. Of a, yeah, yeah, a little yeah. Band-Aid temporarily just to kind of help normalize their bleeding and improve their quality of life. And then maybe five years down the road, they're ready for major surgery. Yeah. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last one was just somebody with an abnormal shaped uterus. <laughs> so- I kind of, I have uh, yes and no. So I think with the type of ablations that we do, definitely not because the radiofrequency ablation device is very specific to needing a normal cavity. Um, I have seen these done in with hydrothermal ablation and cryotherapy. So I can't say no, she shouldn't have her ablation, but it depends on what type of ablation you're having. And is it less effective? Absolutely. Um, but these would be a little bit trickier scenarios. It's something that I wouldn't be able to offer this patient, but in a different facility, if they had those, yeah. you know, cryotherapy or hydrothermal ablation, then that definitely would be an option, but yeah. not with radio frequency. Yeah. I mean, people, you know, to di- dive a little bit into hospital dynamics. Sure. You unfortunately don't get every little machine that you want. No. <laughs> Even though they <laughs> well, promise we'd like it like to, to you. have all the things in our toolbox. <laughs> I want all the um, to, to, to take care of every single mm-hmm. scenario, but um, sometimes you just don't have um, options. And so yeah. it, with that radio frequency ablation system that we have, mm-hmm. we wouldn't be able to offer that patient um, ablation treatment. So, um, or someone that has like really large fibroids, I usually caution against it mm-hmm. um, and, or other potential reasons. Yeah. But yeah. And the, the fibroids and the size of the uterus, the reason why that's important, again, specifically with radiofrequency ablation is, again, the device is only so big and it can only touch on so many parts of the uterus. And the goal is to burn all of the lining, right? And if it's either distorted by the fibroids or the uterus is too big, it's just not going to work. So let's not waste her time. Okay. I think that's that's good, right? I think so. Yeah. I think we're, we okay. did pretty good this time. It is time. fun to watch the hydrothermals, though. Yeah. Just like actively see it dying. Yeah. <laughs> something Burning. wrong with me. <laughs> yeah. Well, in short, ablation. It's a great non-hormonal option. Mm-hmm. And so some people can, just can't do hormones or don't want to do hormones. It's great non-hormonal option. I, it's quick, straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, Little downtime. Yeah. Um, can be done in the office or their operating room. Depends on your um, place a little bit. Um, quick recovery. And you go back to your everyday life very soon. But it does have its limitations. Mm-hmm. It's not for everybody. And so that that's where the conversation comes in, um, in the clinic. Mm-hmm. Right. Anything else you want to add? No, I think we're good. Happy January. My music wasn't working. <laughs> <laughs> Happy January. Happy new year, everybody. Um, if you enjoyed this uh, podcast, share it with a friend. Uh, and that's it. Thanks for listening and viewing. If you have any questions, please uh, let us know in the YouTube comments. Um, and as always, the content of this podcast and video are for educational purposes only. None of the content is meant for personal or medical advice. Personal medical advice. 
please contact your medical provider if you're in need of personal medical advice. Hope you have a good day, everybody. Oh, yeah. Yes, have a good day. <laughs> <laughs>